Hey, welcome to another edition of the Culture Class Podcast, a podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds. And today I have Mo Sybil on the podcast. I've been trying to get Mo on the podcast for a little while. Mo is my OG, a fellow pod breaker. So um, if you guys have been following podcasts, you know that I'm part of this group called Podbreak, which is um, African podcasters in the diaspora. And Mo is also in that group. She's in high demand. Like she's like, remember when Michael Jackson was in like high demand when he put that baby over the ledge? Whatnot, like everyone wanted to interview him. That's kind of like how Mo is. So I'm the dangled baby, by the way. <laughs> You're a dangled baby. I'm the baby they are dangling. <laughs> Man, Mo has been in high demand, so it's been difficult to get her. So thankfully we have her today and thank you so much. I know as a parent, it must be difficult also finding time as a working professional as well to do stuff like this. So thank you for, you know, catering to our very little platform. Appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. First of all, I want to say thank you. And you got it right. It's conferences and I had so much travels and then taking care of a toddler. But, you know, I'm so happy to be here. Finally glad that we um, were able to get it done. I'm doing okay. It's just Monday, but it feels like Friday has come and gone. Yeah, but otherwise we're doing okay. Thanks for asking. Nice, 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 nice. So today is like a first for me because I think this is like the very first time where I had the title of the episode before I even started recording. Typically, like, it would be after editing, I'm like, okay, based on how the conversation went, like, what would I name this? Or maybe while I'm recording, but even before I started recording, I'm like, I'm going to name this episode The Adventures of Mo. Well, look at you. I never have my title until when it's, you know, gone. So look at you. You're, you're very seasoned. I still, I'm still learning work from you. Nah, nah, nah. See, you see how Nigerians, we wash each other. I mean, if you're not Nigerian, listen to this. Something we call wash, right? Everyone, like, no, it's you. No, it's you. No, you're the big no, man. No, it's you. Oh, you're the big yeah, big I see the little work. <laughs> Let's stop. I mean, we don't work in the laundry facility. Let's stop washing each other. Sure, <laughs> sure. This is not a little podcast. You, you've done great things. So I wanted to correct that. Oh, you as well. Yeah, you as yeah, well. You yeah. as well. But, you know, more really reminds me of I mean, this is not like just a by-the-way comparison, but there's another Nigerian lawyer called Mo, right? Mo Odele, right? Like if, you know, the whole NSARS thing that happened two years ago, she was right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Very instrumental. Like Nigerian women like you and Mo and other women I know personally, you guys have this aura about you, right? Like you deliberately uh... fight against societal norms. And when I say societal norms, that, that can be very strong in the Nigerian context, right? Where women yeah. are expected to be a certain way, like, oh, get married, do this, do that. And you guys just put your foot down. There's another friend of mine, Dupe, I know who I went to high school with. She's also the same way. And I admire stuff like that because it's not easy like if i was a woman in nigeria i don't know if i would have survived so that's not like the easiest <laughs> so you guys putting your foot down and saying that man no i'm gonna do things my own way like where do you guys get that confidence from where do you get that confidence from to live like that <sighs> we're just jumping right into it aren't we and i have a feeling that the questions you're gonna be asking me i might not answer them quite as deeply as i want to. and then maybe like 20 days later i'm like dang it i should have responded this way but i'll try my best where did i get my confidence from i think it's from so many sources so i grew up not very advantaged funny enough my mom and if you know my mom she's very quiet she could enter a room you will not even notice her but she's she's a very strong woman 
And I think from when I was really young, she would always tell me I could do whatever I put my mind to. So she had a little bit of an interrupted life. She got pregnant when she was in her 20s from this ultra conservative family. I met my dad in Lagos. She was from Ibadan, went to Lagos. And then my dad spotted her in the bank and, you know, I was conceived on a whim and their family was started overnight. So that kind of derailed her a little bit. She did end up getting her engineering degree. But I think that early startup kind of affected her because you know how community can be when you have a child out of wedlock. They will still eventually get married and have too much kids after that. But my mom, I think she internalized all of that. She had so much that she wanted to do and she did do so much. And I feel like I'm just an extension of those dreams. My dad as well, he has a very strong work ethic. I didn't grow up really very close to him. Now we're very good friends. And I think just I've been very blessed to have positive people that have propelled me. Even when I lived in an environment that didn't look like, I mean, I'm a rarity within a rarity because where I grew up, I shouldn't be here today. And so I have so many people to thank for and so many positive factors and so many people like pulling up a chair for me, opening up the door for me. So I'm a product of many people. I'm not self-made, but I think my originators are my parents. Nice, nice. And it's been a while I heard that term, out of wedlock. That's a very Nigerian thing. Right. <laughs> right? It's not like, like, we both live in America. So like, we, you have a kid, you have a kid. What's the meaning of out of wedlock, right? Like, Nigeria can be ultra conservative sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. So if a couple aren't married and they have a kid, especially back in your mom's day, I can imagine, like the 80s, the 70s, 60s, mm. it must have been like a whole thing. But what's one particular... and you know, I don't mean to keep like drilling down this. It's fine. Let's do it. Let's do it. I want to just understand the psyche of like, you know, very interesting women like you. Like what's one time when you were a kid, one very specific situation. And I know you said your mom would always tell you that, hey, you can do everything, you know, you put your mind to. But was there a specific situation where you can think back to as a kid that she really drilled that confidence in you? And from that day forward, like you couldn't forget that episode because... So she was there and whatnot. There's so many. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, pull you aside and sit you down and that dramatic moment. I think it wasn't just the way she lived her life, right? Mm, by example. And I think for me, it came with books as well. My mom was an avid reader and I was a voracious reader. I could read anything and I read everything. This was Pace Setters. My very first book was Able My Love. Ooh, Pace Setters. Throwback. And you know, some stories kind of not quite was wholesome for kids, but I read them all. Hadley Chase, James Hadley Chase. So my parents were, my father was a poet as well. So I would stumble upon his writings. Whatever we lacked in possible housework, I mean, resources we made up for in books. So I was surrounded by a lot of books and just. I traveled the world with books, you know, even though I was still, you know, in that little corner in Shomalu, but the books kind of helped me. And I think that was really my first one. And my parents, they didn't hold anything back when it came to my education. And I go back now, now that I'm in my 30s, my mom had me when she was 21 and I became a mom not so long ago through adoption, which is another conversation. And I still shudder at the thought of how did they do it? Right. Because I went to a private school, which I thank God for, as well, I'm able to speak good English, I think. They could have used that money to get a better housing. And for the longest time, I was so mad the way we grew up. But the older I get, the more I realize that, I mean, these guys tried their best. They actually went against the grain. They gave up a lot of comfort just to invest in us, right? And so even at school, whenever I was, you know, 
People say, oh, you were always first. I was always first in school, like getting all their awards and prizes. And I think even coming home, they were very encouraging. My parents were very encouraging, you know, to keep going on. Whatever I needed, they provided. If I needed extra lessons, needed more books, I couldn't maybe travel out of the country, but I had books. They just fed me with that knowledge. And I think those encouragement went a long way. And then some other subtle things, you know, just you hearing them talk about you to their friends, especially my dad. Maybe on Christmas Day, you get a, like a bonus gift because you did so well in school. Yeah. So, yeah. Nice. It's just those things. Sorry, I don't have like a gengen, you know. Nah, 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 nah. It's fine. I mean, I can super relate. My mom was a literature teacher and I can remember... You know, the passport of Madame Ilya and all the superannuquency and bottled leopard books that, you know, we, we kept. Oh, the good ones. Yeah. Reading and the sugar girl and all those things that we kept reading. Oralia. Oh. Because as a literature teacher, like, she would have to, like, design the curriculum for the term. So all these books would be at home. And then, like, I see. she would ask us to read them. But over time, I don't know. I'm not doing as much reading as I love to these days. I'm doing more listening to, like, audio books and podcasts and whatnot. But I really should get back to living. But one more thing, not to overflog this issue, but one more question. Because, you know, we're documenting, right? We're documenting this for your daughter, right, in the future and other people. So Yes, yes. <laughs> I like how you put it down. So Nigeria, obviously, is a very conservative place, right? Yeah, yeah. Most of the conservatism is fueled by religion, right? Like mm -hmm. pastors tell you that, hey, you know, this is not godly. You know, you can't do this. You can't do that. A lot of things aren't permitted. Mm -hmm. Now, when I look at you sometimes, like you seem to be a very religious person, right? Anytime I want to do stuff for pod break on Sunday, you're like, nah, I'm going to be in church. I can't do it. Like you guys are 9, 9 to 11 a.m. on <laughs> holy hours. Like don't even like reach out to me this time to this time on Sunday. I'm going to be in church. Yes. And when I listen to some of your past interviews, you also, you know, mention God and like you seem to be a very dedicated Christian. Now, was there some type of conflict? Because going against societal norms and being a strong woman growing up in a place like Nigeria, Nigeria, that might almost mean like you might have to just like push religion to the side and say, you mm -hmm. know, to hell with the pastor and to hell whatever the church says, I'm going to do what I, how did you still like marry those two together that, was it later in life that you felt, okay, let me go back to a religion that maybe my mom or my parents taught me, but how was that for you like growing up marrying those two things, being independent and also being religious as well? Oh my God, look at you coming all these deep questions. Okay, do I call my, I won't call myself religious. I'll just say have a relationship with Christ. And so growing up, my mom was the avid churchgoer. My dad was just, you know, very nominal. One of the things that I think was I could see my mom, remember how I said she lives by example, was just how very humble and how grounded she was. Because she doesn't talk a lot, people kind of just assume so many things about her. And whenever I would show up, they were, I saw your daughter, you know, because I was a first. Whatever my mom couldn't do, I was almost like, I was that child that you shouldn't look down on people because the pendulum is going to swing and it's going to create a forest called Mo. Right. Um, <laughs> so anyone, listen, be careful how you treat people because you might end up, you know, with people like me, which is not a bad thing, but it's just a pendulum swinging. And I think her faith was it. I never heard her say anything bad about anybody. Even when people said wrong things about her, even when I, as a child, I was so, that thing about being, trying to right all the wrong, I almost like I was born to like avenge, you know? So that was it. So growing up in Nigeria, like most Nigerians, you had a religion. I gave my life to Christ, yeah, but it was just that thing you did, corporate prayer, you know, Sunday, fill up that time. The corporate what? 
Copper prayer, copper religion. What is that? Like, you know, it's like you have this family insurance, you just go and die. It's, you know, that was my life in Nigeria. Yeah, because, I mean, the environment also enabled it, right? You know, everywhere you go, God bless you. It was kind of normal to do that. Now, right. I moved to the U.S. 2011, came here for my PhD. And I've always been very curious. Uh, I have this mind. In fact, there was a time that I knew I had to just slow down because I was reading, getting into some very, very dark things because of just how very curious my brain went. And so that conflict came to a head. It was already brewing, you know, because sometimes I'll see how the hyper-religiosity was really something that I never really agreed with, especially when we use religion as a tool to kind of oppress other people or mm. keep them behind and all that. I've always been against that, and I was always someone that would speak against that. But then coming to the U.S. and in a very hyper-intellectual environment, like in grad school, where you're talking to people who they will tell you there was no God, and believing in God was almost like a call to you believing in Santa Claus. And, you know, had some personal crisis and, it was just a perfect mess. And not being under that corporate religious insurance that I was under my family, I was very exposed, right? Mm. And so I stopped being a Christian. Now, I couldn't, for the life of me, go towards the atheist route because I have had a personal encounter with God. I knew there had to be a God. But the utility of that God to me at this stage in my life was something I questioned. But I never questioned God as a whole, right? And so for a whole year, I didn't go to church. I was actually having a lot of questions and I'd always been that child, even back in Nigeria, asking questions and people look at you like, just believe, just take it like it was. And I was like, why is this so? Why is that so? And nobody was, you know, answering those questions. And I come to the U.S. where, you know, you could ask questions and you could, you know, have those intellectual conversations, but religion wasn't fitting in that model. Mm. So I just went the science route, which again, I know even saying that there's always that space inside. I mean, science to me, I was able to just find a way eventually to marry both. So what really brought me back was a couple of things. I've always liked C.S. Lewis, and he's one of my favorite apologists. I'm sorry, who's that? C.S. Lewis, Chris Tipple. C.S. Lewis, okay. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, yeah. he's um, He died the same day um, J.F. Kennedy died, but nobody remembered because J.F. Kennedy, you know, his death shook the world, but he was he lived in the UK and he was a very good writer. This Chronicles of Narnia is the writer. Ah. The Christian guy. But the way he wrote about faith, my goodness, like it was like I found answers in the way he talked about it. But then even after reading his books, I still had more questions. But it was that thing of the more I keep living my life, I'm gonna keep having questions. And it's okay to keep questioning these things. Whereas mm. in Nigeria, it was like you couldn't ask these questions. So as a scientist, right, when you run your regression models, you always have variances that you cannot explain. You can't have a hundred percent your model fitting, right? We'll have, you know, 70% is a good fitting model. You say the remaining 20% is things we don't know for, we can't account for. And it was still the same scientific terminology that God spoke to me. Like, why do I feel like even if I knew all the answers, it was going to serve me a purpose, right? Why do I feel like having this answer, if I don't have the answer to this question, I cannot move on. How about whenever you run your model and you've got like a 70% variance, you're okay with the model because there's some things that are significant mm. that you're looking at those findings. You're not even bothered about the unexplained variance. You're looking at your model and what could be going on here? What is the correlation between this and that? When we've controlled for this variable and that variable. And so it was really, um, 
I think God found me in that way. And I still struggle with my faith. I'm not going to lie to you, mm. but I found a way to kind of like walk through it. I'm what you call a cynical Christian because I still leave that room for questioning. And I think as whenever we find people like me, the mistake we make is that when we shut them out and be like, just believe, we're making God in our own image, right? Mm. And because we're limiting God to our understanding, there's nothing stopping me as a Christian to say, hey, I don't know the answer to that, but that's a very interesting question. How about we find the answer together? And as something um, C.S. Lewis said, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Mm. I'm innately selfish. I have really bad quirks. I have really bad habits. And I think for me, my religion has helped me to be loving towards people. Right. Because otherwise I just want to get my way. I get things done and I can be quite ruthless about it. And I think my religion grounds me. My religion for me is to serve others and to love them. And where does that love come from? Because I've been commanded to love. If I want to love people, I can only love you if I feel like you're intellectual enough, because that's just my personality. I respect people that are highly intellectual and that respect is, I see it as equated as love. I, I really judge you by competency. What does that mean? I'm leaving out a lot of people that might not make up, you know, that quote. Mm-hmm. And so for me, my religion, you know, has commanded me to love and to serve. So yeah, like C.S. Lewis, I think my faith helps me see everything else. It helps me live this world. And even with the sufferings that come with being a resident of this earth, the probability of bad things happening, if you throw a die up and, you know, you have a probability of, what's one six percent of landing on a one, right? Right. But then you live in a world where there's so many things that can happen to you, whether you're good or bad, good things and bad things will happen to you. And for me, the world can be quite overwhelming because, you know, my brain, the neurons fire. So the way my brain works is it's sometimes it's like system overload. I think my religion grounds me in just keeping me grounded that, OK, slow down. Right now, making it about yourself. How can you serve other people? Right. Yeah, that's how I see my religion. That's a very interesting perspective. I, I don't think I've heard that perspective. And for listeners listening, obviously, you know that Mo is an intellectual. At this point, like she's been mentioning a regression <laughs> and probability <laughs> and all these things that I know nothing about, right? Oh, my goodness. I'm <laughs> sorry. I've lost half of you. I like Mo. This Mo be ethical, but you know, but... <laughs> like, but man, like it's interesting you say that how you tied religion to science, right? That okay, you have 70% confidence. I guess that's the definition of fate, right? Like, yeah, it is. You can't see the whole path, but you just jump in. You can't see the whole thing, you just jump into it. And it's interesting you use that analogy. I just had flashback or PTSD. There's this girl I used to date, right? I don't know, like. Man, if you want to explain anything to me, just put it in business terms. Like all this stuff you're talking about, psychology, oh, this is how you make me feel. Just put it in business terms. Like, over time, she learns. She's like, look, when you're in a partnership, right? Our relationship is like we're trying to make profit on this thing. I'm like, okay, yeah, now I understand. <laughs> but yeah. you just, you know, tie religion to science. Like, yeah, really reminded me of that. But it's very interesting you saying, does environment have anything to do with it at all? Because like most of these things you mentioned, like, Okay, religion making you grounded, you having to go through a crisis and then circling back, like would all those things have happened or would you still have been a corporate Christian if you just stayed in Nigeria? Like, do you think like you moving to the U.S. and we'll touch on that story about you moving to the U.S. in a bit, but do you think you moving to a different place like had an impact on your spirituality as well? It was a matter of time. And if people listen to this who know me, they will tell you that my thought processes were always different. You know, 
I was that person asking the questions. I don't know how to put it. I remember my friend reaching out to me, like, you know, that she's so proud of me that even whenever I would talk, like the way I would say some things, my perspective was always different. But I knew it was a matter of time where those things were going to come bring up. And I'm glad that it happened here because because of just the way the society is built, you have to make a case for your faith. Mm. But if it happened in Nigeria, I think it wouldn't have been meaningful. You know what I mean? Because, yeah, because of just how contrasting it was, it was almost like black versus white. And that whole research analogy, I, I won't take credit for that. It was the way, you know, God spoke to me, right? That in research, you research is built to accommodate uncertainties. Mm. You know, for example, confidence intervals, which in my opinion should be called uncertainty intervals. It tells you how much uncertainty you have, right? Yeah. And and now I just leave a little bit of bigger room to walk by faith, you know, and I still have questions. In fact, there's nothing I can't question about my faith. There's nothing that is not debatable because when we get uncomfortable about questions about God, we're limiting God to our knowledge. I'm a follower of Christ. I don't know everything about God, but I know some things about him. And so mm. when someone comes to me with questions and I don't have that answer, I'm not going to take out the irritation on them and try to tell them, you don't have faith. That's why you're asking all these questions. And I think that was done to me as a child. And after a while, I just stopped asking questions because people just looked at you almost like, I would say it felt like sometimes we thought maybe this child was possessed. Why are you always asking questions? Just, you know, do it. Close your eyes and do it and do it. I always had questions. The Nigerian way, right. The Nigerian way, you know. Right. And so I'm glad it happened here because... The conflicts, the environment really helped to make sure that I saw it to the very end. Because remember, it was protracted for a year. I wasn't going to church. I wasn't praying. And I mean, I was going through a painful experience in my life. The thing about pain is that it demands an answer, right? Again, going back to C.S. Lewis, I'm going to call him a lot. There's something he wrote about pain. He said, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. Mm. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And it was just an opportunity in crisis. Looking back now, I didn't see that end coming. There was so much pain. There was anger there. And coupled with just, you know, what's the point of Christianity? What's the point of this faith when I'm going through this much? Where's this God that I've been praying? So how can he let this happen to me? You know, and I still have those moments of pain, but... I'm more comforted knowing that how I hurt, God also hurts by it. It was hurt as well. Mm. And my religion just helps me, you know, understand that. I mean, I don't know the answers to why these things happen, but I'm rest assured that everything worked together for my good. And maybe it's just a way of holding on to hope because this world is chaotic. There's so much that is out of our control. Um, I really don't watch the news anymore because I tend to absorb a lot. So I get a lot of my news from maybe WhatsApp status or maybe I'm scrolling down and, and like today I heard about a shooting in Nashville. And there's so much coming at you that is quite overwhelming. For me, my faith is almost like that blissful line in the sand. Like this is my, this is where I can anchor my stress. Maybe it's just a, Copy mechanism, some might say, but that's my copy mechanism. And so far, so good. It's worked for me. 
Interesting. Interesting. I love the way you're thinking through this, even though some of that thought process you're assigning it to, you know, God and like a higher power and, and, yeah. and it not just being you. Let's touch on your immigration story. Mm. So how this Nigerian girl who, you know, went to Unilag, who was pretty independent, who was raised to be her own person, ended up in Oklahoma, of all places. So from what I understand, you met your husband in college. Is that correct? Yes. In Nidaraba, yes, correct. All right. Back in Nigeria, and both of you emigrated together to the U.S.? Almost together, but I can explain that more in details. Okay. Okay. There was a gap. Okay. Tell us what's the story. He followed you here. Like, was it an Indian movie? Don't run away, my love. I'm coming. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Let me know. So I finished with a pharmacy degree. And my fourth year in school, I had a professor look me dead in the eye and say, you need to go get a PhD. And I kind of, you know, scoffed at her like PhD. Because I see those students roaming down the halls of the pharmacy building. They look dead. They were spending like 10 years, you know, getting a degree. I'm like, that can never be me. And so there were certain things I didn't want to do. I didn't want to be in retail pharmacy for too long. I didn't want to do sales rep or drug sales and all that. I love asking questions. And I think this is why my current profession kind of satisfies me because it's a field that lets you ask all the questions you want. So I did my internship at Chevron, mostly by the works for UCH in the HIV clinic. And it was there that I started looking at Okay, we're giving these drugs for free to help HIV. And we know that if you're not at least 90 something percent adherent to your medications, you're going to have a very poor outcome. Why aren't these people taking these drugs that are free again? They drive all the way, three hours away. Some come from as far as undosted to battle to pick up their medications. And then by the time we run their blood test, the viral load is so high. So in HIV therapy, we want to lower the virus load. I want to increase the CD4. CD4 is like your white blood cells fighting for you. And so when you have that inverse, the person is not doing quite well. And so it kind of bugged me a lot. And of course, you see patients dying because it was so, then we didn't have a lot of these, you know, highly active pills that they've combined. Then it was almost like M&Ms of drugs with, you know, really toxic side effects. So I really was wondering about the social behavioral aspect of adherence. If you're giving drugs for free, why are people not using them? I mean, I've explained what the drug does to the body, what the body does to the drug. I'm this eager beaver pharmacist fresh out of you know college and I'm telling you what to do and you're not listening. And I think that frustration drove into grad school to kind of really understand that because I wasn't taught that in pharmacy school, especially you know, the patient aspect and just some of the factors, you know, like stigma, for example, or just the boarding and all that kind of stuff. I was supposed to go to the UK, but my friend, she told me, with your grade, I finished with the first class, by the way. I would go to the best, and that's the US. I didn't really want to write the GR. Wait, wait, wait. You can't just breeze over that. You said you graduated with a what? I had a first class. A what? <laughs> People actually attained that degree. I thought that was just there for. Please. No, no. I had a first class. And wow. I... I didn't want to write the GRE. That was actually what was precluding me from going to the U.S. because I was like, why was I start studying for maths and English again? So I applied to a U.K. school. I got like admission right away. They gave me £5,000 off. I remember it was to Ashton University to go study drug delivery. But the way it was, it really wasn't what I wanted to study, but it was just a way out of the country. And my friend Tolu told me, hey, 
more like if I were you, I would you know aim for the best. Your God is good grades. Why are you limiting yourself? And I think finally, you know, my brain opened. I was like, okay, let me just go write a GRE. And I found a mentor for me who had gone ahead of me. I was actually following her without knowing. She finished from my school, got a first class as well, went to Chevron, but she left the moment I got in. So people always compared me to her, like, you need to talk to Fumi, you need to talk to Fumi. And, you know, I did that thing of, you know, success is A plus B equals to C. She gave me her playbook, you know, write to GRE, apply for funding, go straight for a PhD. So for my bachelor's degree, I went straight for a PhD and I got into one of the best schools for my degree in University of Texas at Austin. And so I got married in June because I told my boyfriend that, hey, I'm not doing long distance. What are we doing? Meanwhile, he had proposed to me. Did you give your boyfriend the Nigerian lady ultimatum? No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Let you know this. The moment he saw me, he said he was going to marry me. And I laughed at him because I wasn't planning to get married. I was planning to go to France. I was learning French, get my PhD and adopt kids. France? Why France specifically? I loved languages and I was learning French then. I could okay. speak French then. And so I've adopted and I've gotten my PhD, but I never went to France yet. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Sorry to cut you short. Just for clarity, right? So you were already admitted to the University of Texas at Austin before your boyfriend proposed, but you said you weren't ready? Oh, no, 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 no. He had proposed. He had proposed to me like a year before. Oh, he had proposed to you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But we've been dating for like five years. And the moment he started dating me, he said, I just want to date you. I want to marry you. And I told him, hey, hey, no, I'm not ready to get married. I don't think I'm going to get married, but I like you enough. Let's date. Damn. After five years, just to put him in the friend zone. It wasn't friend. So we're dating, but I just, <laughs> we were dating, <laughs> but I had, again, we can, maybe that could be another podcast episode. I just didn't think I was somebody that was going to be stable enough in a marriage. Because the concept of marriage was something that was kind of like bewildering to me. Like, how do people stay together, you know, for that long and not, you know, give up on each other? So I told him, hey, I'm not doing the long distance thing, but we can just go ahead and get married. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, let's do it. Set the date, got married in June. I moved here in August. And so he's a physician, right? He had to like um, wrap up so many things he was doing. So he joined me in October. And yeah, got my PhD at University of Texas at Austin. And then right out of school, I got a job at University of Oklahoma. And so I just moved states, just one state across. And, you know, it's been six years. Nice, nice. So that's highly inspirational because, you know, I respect like couples who relocate together because, you know, just like you said, you know, about the marriage thing, like you don't just like, I think about it, that man, like, some people who like move their whole family, even if it's not kids, if it's just like a husband and wife, but both of you are moving to a different country at the same time, like because there's uncertainty both ways. You're not even mm-hmm. sure if one of you is going to get a job. Maybe one of you is a student. One of you is trying to do this. One of you is trying to do that. Like what were some of the things like the U.S. tends to have some benefit or a bunch of benefits, depending how you look at it. Like, okay, economic stability. You can work here, you know, without insecurity issues that are back home. But what were some of the surprises, I'll say, that you guys faced as a couple when you came here? Yeah, so how many days we have? <laughs> I laugh at Korean. So just give us one or two. <laughs> so even the immigration process, whenever we went to Abuja to get our visa, I was the primary applicant. So F1 is a student visa. F2 is a dependent, right? And by virtue of getting my PhD admission and funding, I was the primary applicant. My husband was supposed to come along. And during the interview, they just focused on him. And I think for two reasons. He's tried coming twice. So he has siblings here. 
and they denied him twice. So this time around, they were asking, what are you going to be doing while your wife is working? He said he was going to write a novel. So the next time you see him, if you ever see him, ask him about the romance novel he said he's going to write for the U.S. government. <laughs> and so if you remember, whenever you apply for your visa, they have a third-party company where you go pick up your passport, which is independent of the embassy, right? Okay. And you never know when they're going to call you. So we're in Abuja. We live in Lagos, by the way. And school was going to start for me the next week. So we kept waiting to get that call from the embassy. We, then we finally got the call. Your passport was ready. It was a Friday afternoon. Went to pick up the passport. We scheduled our flight to leave Abuja that same night. It was, I think, Jachangi Airlines or so. I don't know if it's still defunct or if it's still... To leave Abuja to the U.S. or to come back to Lagos? To Lagos. No, no, to Lagos. To come back to Lagos. Okay. And then my flight from Lagos. And I was going to book my flight from Lagos to Austin. Now, whenever I went to pick my passport, I noticed that on his passport, they put F1 on it as a student, which is highly incorrect because he didn't have a service. He had an I-20, but it was dependent on me. So we emailed, I'm glad I, again, listen to your listeners, always have trails, documented trails. You could have left a voicemail, that could have been something they would delete on their end. But I had an email, I let in the U.S. Embassy, hey, my name is blah, blah, blah. We just picked up our passport. We noticed this error. Please let us know. I called them before leaving. Nobody answered the phone. So I flew. I mean, the plan was it was going to join me later on. Whenever I was done with, you know, his job and tying off with his ends. Well, we got a call. He, he got an email a week later saying that our visas had been canceled because we presented fraudulent documentation and that we shouldn't attempt leaving the country. Oh, you were even roped into the whole situation as well. I was roped into it. Okay. I'm like, wait a minute. So what do you mean by fraudulent documentation? It was your error. And we alerted you to that. And I'm very thankful about this. And I always say to people that I mentor, if your school, no matter how much they're giving you, I don't even care if they're giving you free tuition. If they don't have an international office, do not go to that school because they will become your liaison and you never know what kind of deep shit you're going to be in, excuse my French, until it happens to you and you start looking around. I've had friends go to school that they don't have any form of representation and they just left exposed. So I go to my international office. I was in tears. Laura Straub was her name. She saw me just waiting. Imagine getting an email that you are now a fugitive, you know, wanted by the U.S. government. That's how I interpreted Again, I have a very dramatic mind from reading so many novels growing up. And she was like, okay. So I sent her the email. She was like, oh, you did everything right. This is not your problem. Anyways, they fought back and forth. At the end of the day, they told my husband to come back to Abuja. I decided drilling him and they fixed the visa. Now, because the system already issued that visa, they couldn't take it back. So what they did was type a colon, F1 colon. They now put derivative of, they put my name. Now, one mm. thing you would know whenever you get to the point of entry in this U.S. is that these people at the gate, they don't even know anything about visas. Facts. Those guys that are there, they have no idea. So he comes in and meanwhile, I told him, let's print out everything. I just had a strong suspicion something was going to happen because this visa category they gave him, there was nothing like that. So whenever he got to the front of the officer in Houston, and meanwhile, we were waiting in Austin to pick him up. He didn't show up. They looked at his visa. They now stamped him as a student. And then you know how you walk away. It's one way you can't walk back. He goes, hey, you know, this is a mistake. Because if they stamp you as F1, they will run your attendance. If you're not um, making your attendance and all that, you can get into trouble. So he told them, I'm not an F1, I'm F2. They started lamenting the whole story. They're like, well, they put him aside. 12 hours later, they told him, well, 
they should actually send him back to Nigeria, but they're going to do a visa waiver for him. So this ESTA that they um, use for Canadian or Korean citizens, whenever they come into the country, you can spend like 30 days, like a visa waiver, they put him on it. But they told him, if you're leaving the country, you have to reapply. But this allows you to stay legally. So my husband was stuck here for seven years. That was one of the biggest challenges. For seven days? Seven years. No, no. Seven years. No, stuck in this country for seven years because he was scared of going back because he didn't know whether he was going to be able to make it back again. Right. That was one of the biggest hurdles. Whenever I met him in college, my husband is very industrious. Like he's a physician, but he has a business mind. We ran a printing business together, made a lot of money together in Daraba in college. And he made his first million in his 20s by just working. And this is someone that he knows about money. So imagine him coming here and just being at home. Even though he was preparing to write his board exams, USMLE, which is like the licensure exam, we knew that it was going to be a rough road to get into residency and eventually begin to live his life. And I would go live my best life as a PhD student. He would come to all of my presentations. He gave me feedback on everything. But I looked at him and I felt like he wasn't making progress. And that made me very, very depressed. I wrote about it. There was this blue chair, like a rocking chair we had. And every time I would come home, he would be there reading. And I knew he was spending his time studying, but it broke my heart to see this enterprising person, entrepreneurial person just reduced to mm. someone's just reading. And because we didn't want to break the law, we didn't want to go do any kind of walk on the runs and all that. We're very, you know, clean as a whistle, just straight and narrow. Yeah. Yeah. We're very, our peace of mind was, you know, paramount. But that was three, four years of waiting for that to happen. And meanwhile, I eventually got my PhD, you know, whenever I got my master's, he was there. And the way he was so supportive, the more supportive he was, the more depressed I felt. And I know that this was the kind of person he was. He would celebrate anyone that he cared about, even when things weren't going for him. But for me, it was looking at him like I brought him to this country. And we kind of knew, but it was getting protracted. So he tried going to residency three times and he couldn't get into it because one, networking, he wasn't very aggressive the first time. And then two, because of the visa situation, he wasn't on a green card. And if you're on a visa, there's this hyper-saturated pool of application that you're going to with all the Indians and the Chinese and you know all of that. So it was very, very difficult for him to finally get a match. So for three years, he was trying to get a match. Is that a match like the medical match or they match you to a hospital? Medical match, yes. Medical okay. match, yeah. So in the middle of that, I said, hey, babe, because he also got his master's. He got an offer to study public health at the University of Washington, but we thought about the funds. We're like, nah, it's not worth it going. Now, because I was employed by the state of Texas as a TA in grad school, he could get like an in-state tuition fee. So it was going to be a lot cheaper for him to go to school in Texas. So I was like, babe, just go get your master's in Texas. So he went to College Station, the other horrible school, because UT and Texas A&M have a rivalry going on. So he got his master's and he was able to finally use that to kind of boost his residency and finally go into residency. But I would say that those, those first five years, they were not very easy years. Mm. It almost broke our marriage, right? Wow. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be very honest about it. It almost broke our marriage. There's something about just the, I don't know how to explain it. So building our way up, I had a car because whenever I was done school, my dad got me a car for my grades and all that. So I wasn't living badly anymore. I, you know, so I was working for Chevron. I had some money saved. I was earning very well. And then you come to the U.S. where you're just taking the bus 
Mm. I recall one time I had gone grocery shopping and I was about to enter the bus and then my bag just gave way and everything just fell down. Ah, yeah. The bus driver looked at me and felt so sorry for me. He climbed down and said, help me pick my canteen tomatoes and all that. Oh, man, they are lucky that wasn't Lagos bus. Right. Right. And there were so many other things. Finances were very, very tough. And I'm really thankful for her parents. This was when Naira was still 110 Naira to a dollar. So they would send some money. But imagine, you know, them sending money to you in the US. I mean, so those were really hard times. And of course, just I think the tension and it was mostly from me. My husband is very, I married a very great man. He's stable emotionally. I'm like the crazy one. Right. And so a lot of the conflict, especially in the first few years, was just my not being satisfied that this was what he was exposed to. And he was always saying, it's just for a little bit, it's just for a little bit. But finances were, were the biggest issues. And just my impatience about, I want you to go live your life as well. I want you to, you know, have something going for you. Did you feel responsible for his situation? No, not responsible, because I knew that it was a means to an end. Like I said, it felt like it was protracted. And the most success I was getting at my own thing it was a stark reminder that this guy is just frozen right here. But mm. guess what? All of that is history now. And I can't even tell you when last I thought about this. And the way I'm even talking about it right now, I'm talking about like those days weren't funny. They were not funny times. They were really, really hard times. And there were moments where we were at the brink of divorce. And there were hard times. There were times I can't even put in two words. But I'll just say if anybody's listening to this, like hold on to each other, even when it feels like you don't want to hold on to this person, you know, there's a reason why you choose this person. And the harsh realities of living here where the environment is not socially cohesive, everybody's to themselves. You have to hustle and if you don't walk, you don't eat in the US, right? Facts. And the lack of social support, there's nothing to fall back on. And then you don't even have like... When I say like deep, intimate friendship, like it was kind of difficult, you know, not seeing that in grad school. So you were exposed on so many ends, socially, you know, financially, physically, mentally. And so it wasn't like the best of times. But again, I look back now, it builds me into the person I am today. That's a lot. And every immigrant like tend to have their own respective story of the struggles your first few years coming. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for some, it takes longer than others. One thing I notice about you is that you seem to be very comfortable with your emotions or how will I put it? Like wh whether that's you saying you're crying to, what's her name, Linda Strom, mm -hmm. in the international student's office yeah, yeah, yeah. or kind of like admitting on a podcast that, oh, this thing that you guys were going through almost led to a divorce or the yeah. thing with the grocery. Whenever I get to interview married people, I always like to like tap some wisdom because I'm not married, right? And that thing you said about, you know, your husband proposing to you, but you didn't really see yourself as someone who was ready or like yeah. how I even get married. Like I think about myself that way. Sometimes like, look, are you sure I'm even down for this thing? Because do I even have the patience for a whole totally different person? Yeah. And I say that to ask like, in your marriage, you don't have to get too personal, but if you could give us a glimpse, like in your marriage, like how good is, you need emotion to love the other person, right? Uh -huh. You need emotion to care for the other person. Uh -huh. And I'm not sure because I'm not married, but maybe there's a time where emotions get too much and it's like a burden and you describe your husband as being the stable one for some reason. So how is that dynamic and how does this plane, is there any 
developing like too much emotion in the marriage? Like what's our whole dynamic? I, I don't even know <laughs> if I'm asking the question correctly, but if you understand. I think I have an idea. I wish it was, yeah, probably would have been able to chime into it. I married a good person, right? I married someone that he would say something in the first few years of our marriage. I'm choosing to love you. Hey, and that used to get on my nerves. Wait, he said what? He's choosing to love you. I choose to love you. He would say things like that. And I'll be like, hey, am I like a... Isn't that romantic? No. For me, it was like, again, I told you I wasn't a very stable one. To me, it's like you just went to adopt this puppy from the shelter. And then you're just loving me because mm, I've already chosen you from everybody. That was how it felt like. I used to get on my nerves. Yo. Like, how do you say that? Well, again, the woman's psyche. That's how I interpret it. Right, 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 right. Got it, got it, got it, got it. I would say I've learned a lot from him in the sense of just whenever you say you've chosen to love somebody... You have to make it work, right? When you're talking about like too much emotions, <laughs> because I'll just say therapy has been very helpful for me, right? I glossed over a lot of things that I went through in my childhood, but I went through so many deep, jarring emotions, experiences as a child that really affected the way I saw the world, especially men. So I was abused as a child. And I think in the safety of a good relationship, that was actually a trigger for me. Right. I hadn't like been in an abusive relationship, so I wouldn't even know what that was. But the fact that this was stable and this was actually good, all of the demons just came out like, oh, you know, <laughs> we've been hiding now. Let's, you know, let's show you what you really are. So I knew there were so many things I had to work on because I was bleeding on somebody that hadn't hurt me. And so a lot of my vituperations in the early phase of our marriage was more of me looking at him like this is a representation of men. And he goes like, I'm not like those people. And then I still had that fatherly wound that hadn't been healed. And I remember he would say, I'm not your father. You know, I'm not your father. And whenever you hear those kind of things, you realize that, okay, what exactly is going on here? Fine. Maybe he said something that pissed me off, but I'm overreacting. I'm overstimulated. I'm overtriggered. It could be just maybe the way he said it or the way he looked or the way he, you know, I was just hurting all over. So I had to put myself in therapy swiftly. Was that something you had to take on yourself to solve or was he also involved in that healing process in some way? He tried his best, but remember that you can only love somebody to a degree, right? But they have to put in the work. And I mean, there were some things I said that wasn't so nice. There were some things I did to him that weren't so good. And he would say, I still choose to love you. And when you hear somebody saying that over and over again, especially in moments when you shouldn't be hearing them say it, because I would tell you that if the roles were reserved, reversed, I'm not going to have half of that patience, right? And then you realize that you got something good. Why is it not clicking to you? Why is it never enough? You know, why is the safety that you're experiencing? Why is it something that, you know, bothers you a lot? So I had to go to therapy and, you know, work on my demons. And it's been nine years. I'm still in therapy. And mm. I credit that for just, I think, self-awareness, right? I'm not saying all the things have gone away, but I'm aware. I'm self-aware. And even able to say like, hey, you know, how you said this, this is how I interpreted it. But I know that's not how you meant it. I just wanted to let you know. What, what do you think you should have said? And this is just for the benefits of the husbands, like listening to this on this podcast. That don't say I choose to love you. What's a better word to say? No, no, no. You can keep saying that. I can keep saying that. But another thing again, that a man like to fix things, right? And one thing we, we learned is, again, we had to also do my therapy. So we've had individual therapy 
I mean, he grew up really well adjusted. Even when he talks about some of the things he went through as a child, I'm like, yeah, still letting work, sit down, take several seats. But, you know, I think everyone should go to therapy. You know, whether you stay there as long as I have stayed there, but just at this one time, go see a therapist. And there's something we learned. If I come to him with a problem or I'm mad about something, you should ask, do you want empathy or strategy? Empathy is, you know, mm. oh my goodness. Like, you know, she said that to you. Dang it, you know, that's horrible. Strategy is, how can we, you know, get back at that person? Yeah, I think most men default to the latter. Yes, they want to fix things, but women, we just want to talk, you know? And, yeah. and so I think for him having to like switch and, you know, also learn how to understand that when I say some things, this is not how I mean it. So I think meeting the person halfway, even though I've talked about myself a lot, being the person in therapy, he's had to also do a lot of work on himself, but I'm going to let him speak for himself if I ever get to interview him. But all that to say that you can still make it work. Right. I'm glad I married this person because if I would ever get married, I'm glad it was him I got married to. Because if I married someone like me, I don't think it would have lasted, you know, because it's somebody that really believed, he believes in me and he believed in me and he held strongly to me. Even when I felt like, no, nah, like, you know, I'm done. Like in my mind, I've already quit you, you know. And this was me just having to walk through some of my issues. My biggest struggle is how do you even stay together with somebody for many years? Like, I might get bored of you. I mean, infidelity was never going to be something I would question because, you know, it's not something I would easily default to. But just the emotional piece of it was very, very lacking for me. Because if you misbehave, I, my love for you is like gone, that kind of thing, right? Mm. Having to learn that when you love somebody, even in their most imperfect ways, you're loving them through it. Man, that was something I had to learn. Because I grew up in, my father was someone that if you misbehave, you're going to get a year full. So I grew up very... You know, if you did something good, you got reward. If you did something bad, you got punished, you know, and taking that more down into marriage. And I think also there was a movie I watched a long time ago, and there was a quote that says, um, when you're committed to somebody, you don't allow yourself to find perfection in somebody else, right? Because it's possible. I've met people who I thought were more perfect than my husband for me, but I go back, they don't know my history. Mm. They can't take this craziness on a very bad day. Like, Taiwan, my husband, he's very patient. He's very kind. He's very loving. Even in the beginning years of our marriage, I didn't really see those qualities as something that were beneficial to me. If anything, they made me more angry. Like when he would use words, like I choose to love you. But now the older I've gotten, you know, 12 years in, I've learned a lot from him. And even as parents, you know, we adopted three years ago. He still has that model with parenting. He's super patient with our daughter. I'm like, you know, I've already walked away. She's screaming, I'm walking away. Like, yeah, you're not going to put me into trouble. <laughs> but he runs towards the chaos. He embraces her. And I see, remember, he scoops her up in his arms. And she's like, you know. He's a physician, you say, right? He's a physician. Maybe that has something to do with it. I think that's well, he's a kid magnet. I'm kids, you know, go the other way. And I'm fine. My daughter loves me. And that's all, you know, I'm not a kid person, by the way, but I love my daughter. She's a world to me. He runs towards the chaos. And I see the way she responds whenever he will scoop her up and hold on to her. The cry just stops. Meanwhile, I'm just ignoring her. She's crying more because for me, there was like system override whenever she's, you know, this was the first few years of her life when she couldn't talk and express herself. So yeah, I'm glad I married a person because that thing about, Two people doing stuff together and making it exponentially better. I've seen that in marriage because my husband has informed a lot of my process. 
Heck, the person I am today is a result of him. He believes so much in me. I am the one that talks a lot. I'm the one you see on, you know, posting all of that on Facebook. You hardly hear him post anything, but I'm a product of just the confidence and the trust and just so many things that he's invested in me. And I've also rubbed off on his process as well, because together we're doing more together. And and even with parents, I'm seeing the benefit of staying together, of being united, of having the same voice, because these kids will test you. They would find those cracks and just, you know, enlarge and, and enlarge it and all that. So yes, um, so to you, I know a song that was quite scared before, those fears are legit. But the way I see it now is that this world is chaotic, that I have somebody who has said they choose to love me. That makes me feel very blessed because some days I'm not my best self. Some days I'm not a version of myself. I've had, you know, some health issues that I even told him, hey, maybe you should just go marry somebody because we finally found out that. What? Oh, yeah. You said that to him? Yeah, we finally. Verbatim or? Verbatim, yeah, because I realized that I couldn't have kids biologically, you know, because from years of miscarriages and then ovarian issues. And so it was almost like, I know you really want kids. I'm not able to give this to you. I was going to give him an out and it wasn't going to be something that was going to be hard for me. Because again, with the kind of brain I have, you know, if this person wants, I'm able to give the person, just let him go. I was willing to let him go, like, you know, go to that. And of course he looked at me like I was very stupid and ridiculous. How can you say that? He felt very insulted by that. All that to say that it feels like even if bombs are going over my head, that I have this one person in my corner who wants to keep cheering me on and believing in me. I think it's worth fighting for. It's worth pursuing. So I hope that it really encourages you and your listeners. I, love is worth fighting for. And if they say they choose to love you, well, aren't you going to be so lucky to be chosen to be loved? All right. No, it's, it's just that patience. It's very inspirational to hear someone like you guys dated for five years. Yeah. You know, you were together through, you know, all these tumultuous times. Like you guys have been married now for 12 years and you adopted a daughter. Like, yeah. I don't think you give yourself enough credit, though. I know, you know, you speak so highly of your husband and I'm sure he's an amazing guy. But just you being self-aware of some of those challenges, right? And saying that, okay, you understand these things about yourself. And maybe some of them are relating to trauma from your childhood and some other things. But the fact that you're aware alone, like I think you should give yourself more credit and cut yourself some slack that even though maybe your partner is very amazing. Again, this is me, like I'm not married, but like just from me hearing this, because when I listen to Michelle Obama, right? Mm -hmm. Marriage, from what I understand, is a very long-term thing. Like she would say like, oh, like there were times where, okay, when Barack was an intern or whatever, she was one carrying things. Then later in the middle, Barack was one like carrying things. And then later yeah. when he got to off his man, she was one carrying everything <laughs> plus some. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. so like there are all these like maybe decade by decade or five years yeah, miss, period yeah. by period, yeah. you know, where, okay, one partner is it's never always 50-50. That's what she said. No, no, no. Right. Like is it, one partner is giving like 70, 30 this time. The other part of your life is switches. So, you know, maybe you have the opportunity to be his rock and things like that in the future, which I think you're already doing. But I just say that to say you should cut yourself some slack. Thank you. <laughs> but I'd love to touch on like you talking about, I mean, this is, you know, somewhat of a sensitive topic, but, you know, you mentioned that you adopted a daughter yeah. uh, three years ago. Mm -hmm. Actually last year, but we've had that for three years. Uh, but I can talk about that. 
Oh, you adopted her officially last year? Last year, but we've had that for three years, correct, yeah. Got it, got it. Got it. And, and I can tell you love your daughter because even before this interview, you were texting me that, oh man, I have to go <laughs> put her to bed. And what came to my mind immediately, because my dad used to read us some bird time stories about the tortoise and the hare and stuff. I was like, man. Yeah, and the hare, yeah, yeah. What is it? Um, is she reading her Nigerian bird time stories or American like Red Riding Hood? Like I was trying to imagine, but. The giraffe will lose but yeah, we read to her every night. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah. must have been an interesting experience, like as immigrants getting to adopt. Like what's the story there, getting to adopt a kid in the U.S.? So um, remember how I said I'd always wanted to adopt. I kind of just knew as a child that that was going to be my path. Now, how I was going to get there or how it was going to happen, I didn't have an idea. But my heart has always been towards adoption. My mom, I have a sister who's adopted. Even though it's like kinship, it's like an extended family member. But everyone calls my mom Yabimba because they hardly see me. I've moved out of the house now for many years. And even growing up, my mom did a lot of fostering. Now, there was no official fostering system in Nigeria, but I had people come stay with us for a while and, you know, they would, you know, move on to greener pastures. So whenever I got married to my husband, I told him about adoption, but then he just thought it was just one of those dreams I talked about whenever I met him the first time. But I was very serious about it. So sorry to cut you short. What birthed that idea in you to adopt when you were younger? I can't, I can't even say there was anything. I think it was just, I think the desire, and I hate to put it this way in a cheesy way, I think it was a God-given dream for me, right? And let me just say, I'm not the most patient person, mom, you'll ever meet. Even with kids, if they don't know my name, they don't have any personality, I don't remember their names, you know. So a lot of my friends, I just say, how's your baby doing? Unless the baby's old enough to talk and have conversations, then yeah, we can. So again, it was just almost like a mismatch, right? This was 2014. I told him, hey, this was the first time we had our first miscarriage then. So, hey, do you want to give adopting a chance? And the look he gave me, you would have thought I was asking him for a threesome with, you know, a family member. And <laughs> no, yeah, it was that kind of look. Like, how dare you ask that kind of thing? And I've never seen my husband. I want to say it wasn't anger. It was just... I don't know the word. It was anger and irritation, but it was something quite deep. I had never seen him express since then. I've never seen him express that kind of, you know, look. And I realized that as a wife, there's some battles you can win. This is one of them. Usually if you want to get your ways, you can use your womanly ways and, you know, yeah, maybe do a little bit of things around the house, like make him move, you know, mountains for you. But this time around, I knew that this topic wasn't something I could fight. So I let it go. Of course, I was sad about it. And so fast forward, like, Four years later, he turned to me and said, hey, let's give this a chance. I'm like, give what a chance? And between then, we've done IVF, you know, had multiple miscarriages as well. And then in between them, failed IVFs and then had, you know, surgeries and all that. And then he goes, let's give adoption a chance. And I was like, what the heck? I never brought it up again, ever since that first time in 2014. And what changed his mind? It's still something I keep asking him. And I know it had to be good because I never brought it up. I never even tried to manipulate him into saying yes, because... I realized that this was deep for him. It was beyond culture. It was just something that he wasn't going to be comfortable with. And even whenever we started the process, he was like, I just want to foster first. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I wanted to adopt, but since he wanted to foster, so by the time we met with the caseworker. And what's the difference for the benefit of some of our international listeners? Oh, okay. So the difference between adoption and fostering. So in the U.S. or in countries like the U.S., 
whenever there's been a fracture in family, say, for example, neglect, abuse, or trauma, a child is taken away from the home in the meanwhile, right? Now, as a foster parent, you have no legal parental rights. And your decision-making about that child is shared by the agency and sometimes the bad parents, right? So think of it like uh, if the president is sick and they hand over you know, power to the vice president, you're not fully the president, you're just acting, like, right? Like a caretaker. Like a caretaker, yeah. But then you have the hands of the government. So you can't take a lot, like you can't travel with them without getting permission. You can't pierce their ears, you can't cut their hair. You can't, you know, there's so many things you cannot do. You can't cut their hair? No, without permission. You can't even pierce their ears without permission. If they fall sick, you have to notify the the caseworker, if there's a bruise on your body, you have to, because, you know, my daughter will go to daycare. Sometimes she'll come back with like, you know, maybe a child mistakenly, you know, scratched her, she fell off the swing. You document all of that kind of stuff. Because again, you are the middleman between the system who took the child away from the parents and then the bad parents who are trying to get a child back. And a foster parent should model what good parenting should be like. So it could be a factor of neglect, trauma, or addiction or whatever could be going on in the family, right? So whenever we started, we had a child, he was four, he spent like two days and he wasn't gonna, so I thought, oh, okay, this is actually easy. But that two days felt like a whole year because I was sweating out. And the four-year-old probably thought this one is crazy because we have an upstairs, I didn't want him falling downstairs and breaking his arm and all that. But four-year-olds, just give them the food, put it away and then give them the toys and just go disappear, they will take care of themselves. So he luckily got custody by one of his family members. They call that kinship when your family member is able to take possession of you. So on a Wednesday, smack dab in May, we got a call that there was a child who needed placement. We've gotten calls in the past, but then we wanted children that were five and below because, again, being our first time parenting, we didn't want to just take on a kid that was older because we didn't think we had enough tools in our toolkit to like, take care of all the kids. So we got a call about this um, 11-month-old child. And we've gotten calls about like two-day-old babies, one-week-old babies. My husband was always worried that, because I don't sleep very well, like your sleep could be bad. Like, you know, why not just let's get older kids so that way it's easier on you and all that. We got a call about 11 months, like, eh, 11 months. Uh. I told the kids, okay, I'll call you back, but I forgot. And so she called me around 10, like, hey, I've been waiting to hear back from you. So what they do is that they place, your name is on the system, right? And they walk down the list based on proximity to the child. Because bad parents might still have some right to come visit the child. And they want to make sure that, that those visitations are not too far apart. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes they can be desperate. They might have to place a child one hour away if there are no parents around that are able to take the child. So think of it like you're on a waiting list and they keep walking down the list to call parents. Hey, do you have space for your child? We have this and that. Can you take this child for a few days and all that? So we thought it was going to be for a few days. So 11 months, the moment she came in, her eyes were big. She looked at me, started crying. I was crying in my mind as well because I'm like, how am I going to keep you alive? I had gone to Walmart, you know, like the next day I bought like oversized diapers because I didn't know. In fact, the way I was walking around Walmart, it was one of those moments I wish somebody was following me because I had no idea what I was buying. You know, I bought the wrong set of things. Thankfully, my friend Cheryl came through. She told me, oh, if she's 11 months old, you need to buy this size, you know. And that was it. We just, it was day by day learning. I'm very thankful that I came to motherhood that way because there's no other way that it could have worked for me. I tend to overthink things in the sense that even having to have a child naturally was something that really put the fear of God in me because I'm always going like, I don't want to mess a child up, you know, because of the things I've gone through as a child. 
I was very, very almost like too cautious about just bringing children into this world without working on myself. So for me, that work was something that it felt like it was never going to end. I felt like I was never going to be ready to be a parent because I still had so much work to do on myself and all that kind of um, work and all that. I think because of just the way the system was almost like overseeing things, it made me intentionally parent her. So we had to make memories every day because we knew that it was a matter of time before her parents were able to get her back. Because again, mm. it's temporary, right? They could send the child back. So a day turns to one week and then before you know it is three months and then we need to travel out of the country because we took her to Nigeria when she was still a foster child. And then um, we had to get permission from the parents and you know the system and all that. And so by the time we started getting what's ahead, she might become legally free. Legally free means that her parental rights might be terminated and she might be free to be adopted. Would you guys consider adopting her? At that point, for me, the moment I saw her, she was my child. And when I say my child, I still want to honor her bad parents because without them, we wouldn't have her, right? And even if she was going to leave my house afterwards, I was still going to treat her like a child. I wasn't going to treat her like a case or like someone that was temporary. So every day we made memories. And I think this is why she hates taking pictures because I took pictures of her every day. Every day had to be a memory. It could be as simple as just maybe cooking something special or dressing her in a special way or taking pictures. We had to make the day special. I know sometimes it can, you know, it can be quite extra, but for her, she was a child that, you know, it was so, I won't say it was easy parenting her, but she made it very rewarding. And I think because of that oversight by the government, it made it very intentional, right? And the way I was able to reason it was because of just, you know, how the government was breathing behind her as foster parents, I couldn't take a lot of things for granted. If she was my birth child, I probably would have just relaxed a little bit. You know, oh, I'm going to have you for life. Eh, we'll catch up. No. But for this child, I had to be on my A game. And because she came in needing a lot of help, and I used all of my advocacy, social justice skills, we got all the help she needed to make sure she was on track. Because I didn't want her being held behind by, you know, whatever she had gone through in her bed parents' place. I wanted her to have a fresh start of life. So all of my skills, all of my community building skills I put into it. You know, she has so many aunties and uncles across the world. I remember her first birthday. We did it with our friends. It was during COVID. You know, we did like a Zoom call and people called in and, you know, wished her a happy birthday. We, we got her in May. Her birthday was in June. So we had like, you know people just calling and wishing a happy birthday. And so for us, it wasn't like this was a case. This was a child that needed to be loved and we're going to love her, you know, as best as we could. By the time it came to adoption, my husband at this point, he was already in love with her because he was like her favorite person. Now it's switched that mom is like the favorite person, which kind of <laughs> stresses me out because again, like I told you, I can only handle kids in a degree, but she's cute. It makes it worth it. But we realized that we can't send this girl back. Even if she was going to go back to her parents, she was always going to have a seat at our table. You know, I would always remember. I still remember the kids I fostered. I remember their names. I still have their pictures. Even if I ask about them, I can't get those information. What's the average period? I know your daughter was like two years before you officially adopted her. No, it was 866 days. <laughs> so divide by 365, that's what, like two and a half years? So yeah, two and a half years, yeah, boy, yeah. Wow, that's very specific. It depends. It depends. It depends. Okay. We've done three kids and we've had respite in between. So respite is yeah, fostering within a fostering, like foster parents traveling, but they want somebody to take care of the kids while they travel for like a weekend. So we've done four or five respite care, you know? Okay. And so the length of time depends. 
So usually when a child is taken away, the government tells the parents, the birth parents, the first parents, you need to do X, Y, Z. So it can be drug counseling. It can be trauma therapy. You have to learn how to be a parent. You have to learn how to prevent yourself from being in a domestic um, violence situation. If it's the aggressor, you have to go for anger. Mm, and that's just trying to protect the child. the child and also equip the parents and then you as a foster parent you're supposed to serve as a model parent showing the foster parents how parenting should be done so you can communicate with the first parents and you know involve them as best as you can of course be safe about it if the first parents have like maybe gangs or there's some drug issues and you have to make sure your safety is guaranteed because there's no need putting yourself in danger and then, so that length of time depends. I've had friends who fostered for four years before they could adopt a child. I've had people, you know, go up to 10 years. So it depends. And I won't tell you that it was easy. Does the government support financially throughout that three, four years? They do. They do. They do support. Okay. You get like a monthly stipend. But for disclosure, you're talking about $500 a month. What's that going to cover? Diapers are super expensive. And I don't know if you know about the crisis in baby formula that we had during pandemic. It was super expensive. So for us, it wasn't even like the finances. If you wanted to look at it, like, you know, it was a loss. Like you weren't gaining anything financially by fostering this child. But that was nothing to us. Thankfully, we were economically buoyant enough to, you know, be able to take care of her. Like she traveled a lot. I mean, she was flying everywhere with us and whenever I would travel and the government wasn't paying for that, you know, but that wasn't a big deal for us because. Well, that means even as a foster, like even during the foster, you were traveling. To, you said you took her to Nigeria. Yeah, she went to Nigeria as a foster child. Yeah, we took her to Nigeria as a foster child. She been to New Mexico. We've been to Michigan. Like we've traveled. By the time she was like two, she's been to like 15 states and maybe two countries. Yeah. Why do you keep saying, like, you don't think you're ready to be a parent? Like, all these things you're doing, like, in practicality, like, you're being an awesome parent. What are you talking about? I know. No, I'm not awesome. I'm, I'm average. I overthink things. This is why I said I'm glad that my path to motherhood was adoption. Because otherwise, I would have felt like I was never ready. And this was a child that came to me. And, of course, my guardian just kicked in. Because I love to take care of people. You know, my friends would tell you, oh, even though I call myself, I'm not very motherly. They think I'm on it because I look out for people that I care about. Mm. All of those things I've, I've had built in me, you know, righting the wrong and being an advocate and, you know, instead of had that curiosity to learn more about culture. So we speak Yoruba to her, we speak Korean to her, and of course she speaks English. It's all those things that just came together. And I felt like, oh my God, I actually have these resources. But I had also community around me. We don't live life alone, right? Even though I talk about the U.S. being isolated, we've had to penetrate that barrier. So she has, you know, aunties and uncles from all over. Her baby sister is Indian, loves her very well. Her godparents are Americans. She has godparents in the UK. You know, we have family from all over. Her adoption party, we had a Zoom. My advisor from grad school was part of it. She was like, you invited the whole world. Like it was people from different time zones, like, you know, joining the proceedings for her adoption. Just that's the kind of legacy I want to build for her. Like, you know, that she's not alone. She has to make people that love her. And that intentionality towards building community. That's something I had to learn as a foreigner here. And I know adoption is not like ideal. There's a grief to it. I still grief it, right? Because I think about her bad parents every now and then. I think about, especially whenever their rights were terminated, I broke down, I was crying. 
Because as a Nigerian, you know blood is thicker than water. You're telling me that because this judge just said something, this person who went through the labor pains is no longer this person's parents. Mm -hmm. Like they will tell you, you cannot inherit anything through her. I think that was what broke me. You have no right over this person. Your rights and responsibilities are terminated. Wow. That broke me down because as a woman who has gone through, you know, miscarriages and all that, I fell for her bad parents, especially her mom, because she tried her best, but... Is she aware, I know you said she was under five, but is she aware that she's adopted or she just sees you guys? Do you guys plan to put her in the loop? Oh, she's going to know. Have you seen her? Okay, my daughter is half white and half black. So okay. she looks nothing phenotypically like us. And even if she looked like us, again, that thing about being open, she was going to know that she was going to be adopted. But as far as the why did they give you up, it's going to be age-appropriate reasons. But is the truth. Your parents loved you. That's one truth. They tried their best, but unfortunately, they couldn't do their best to get you back. That's another truth. They loved her. I don't doubt that. But then some things happened. They couldn't get you back. And that's another truth. I'm preparing myself to walk her through that, right? And so even though Oklahoma is a closed adoption state in the sense that whenever you adopt a child, it's closed. The parents have no rights to contact you. I left a loop in the system because I did it for her. As much as I love my child, I love her better parents. They haven't made all the best choices, but there's no way I can say I love this child. I want to close that loop. So what we did every year, we send updates to her parents. We don't have to. As a matter of fact, common sense tells you to run the other direction. But I'm doing this for my daughter so that when she's old enough, she gets access. So we, we have an email address for her. It's the same email I send updates to her first parents. I also send her emails. I send her pictures. I send her letters to that emails. So whenever she's of age, she has a time capsule of these oh, wow. times, you know, and I have some of my friends I've given those emails to, to send her emails as well of things she's done that blows their mind. Because she's an exceptional child. I'm not saying that because I'm a mom, she right. blows my mind. I mean, being in her presence, you can tell this child there's something special about her. There's a way she loves, there's a way she explores the world, the confidence she comes with. I didn't come into myself until I was much older. She knows how to carry people in her daycare, they love her, people... Oh, you are his mom. I'm like, yeah, you know, so I'm looking at how people look at my mom. You know, are you taller his mom? Now I'm Ari's mom. And it's such a mind-blowing thing. Aww. So those are the things that I think I'm very thankful that are fostering for me. And I won't say it was easy. My anxiety went up. Heck, I had to be on medications for anxiety because it was just so much. Going to court and hearing everything, you go to court, they'll tell you we'll adjourn for the next six months. And you're like, what the heck is going on? You have this impatience. Again, I'm not a very patient person. Can we just wrap this up? But at the same time, you understand that we're talking about people's lives here, right? Mm -hmm. And so I had to balance me wanting to root for her mom to be able to get her back, but also me wanting to understand that I love this girl so much. I wish I could have her. So I happened to have those two thoughts running concurrently. And they came from two places. And I realized that it's okay for them to be parallel. You know, I could want her mom to win and I also want to win. And sometimes one thought took over the other one, but it wasn't easy. You had to write reports. You had to advocate for her time. Remember, I was married for, what, 10 years, you know, it was just me and my husband. We could travel anytime I wanted. I could, you know, step in anytime I wanted. Now this child comes that demands the time. You think you are the one feeling the challenge in your schedule? No, they fit you in your schedule. And that was mm -hmm. the hardest for me because, you know, I was used to living my life a particular way. And this mm -hmm. is 11-month-old. Remember, I didn't have that bonding moment as a parent who carried a child to kind of get ready. It was just 
moving. And that's how my life has always been kind of dramatic, you know? So it's kind of looking back now, I'm laughing about just how everything happened and having to like make space and, you know, just making a whole world because a child requires a lot, which again, I'm thankful that therapy really helped me understand. And, and I'm thankful for moms who helped me normalize a lot of the stress. My career was the biggest thing to me. Now I'm still in my career, but I'm okay with it stepping down a little bit because I was always so high functioning, overachieving high functioning. Now I'm okay with being average. If I'm able to do my role as a mom, I want to be a good mom before I'm a good professor. Being a good mom is actually priority on my list. That's beautiful. And I, I wouldn't have seen that. If someone had told me that, I would have been like, you're just giving up that for parenting. It wouldn't have made sense to me, but for my child, it's worth it. And so, yeah, that's really been my experience. That's growth right there. You know, like you said at the beginning of the interview, is like when you were growing up, like you cared about people based on the intellectual contributions they could bring to your space or to a conversation. But over time, you kind of like, and that's maybe one of the things you said religion helped you out with. Like now you're kind of like living for other people, your daughter being one of them. Yeah, That's so beautiful. And you said you're teaching her Yoruba and Korean. I think that's so good because she needs to be aware of these Yoruba demons out here, man. Like she needs to, <laughs> she needs to know. No, I raised immune to them. <laughs> your husband needs to tell her all the tricks. She needs to know what's going on. <laughs> oh man, Korea, why did Korean come into the mix? Because I know like you speak, because when I was introduced to you, yeah. to be honest, I thought you were born in Korea. Because everything about you, like your profile, like you use like the Korean signs, like you write in English, you also write in Korean. I'm like, okay, who is Mo? Like, for goodness, like when you learn one thing about Mo, a totally different thing just pops up. Like, oh, she does that too? Like, <laughs> like Korean, Mo. Ah, when I'm on your podcast, maybe we have to do half of it in Korean. Let me see if I can study. Yeah, we can do half of it in Korean. <laughs> yeah, it was just a language that I fell in love with. So remember how I said I learned French for a while and I was supposed to go to France? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Back in Nigeria. You know how we grew up in Nigeria? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very ridiculous. Like French was the same way you speak Spanish here because we had a lot of Francophone countries like bordering Nigeria. But I didn't have the cultural connection, even though like whenever I was Bastille, which is like French independence, a couple of my friends and I will go to a French embassy on the island and just, you know, have like a party and all that. But I didn't have any connection to French people. I didn't watch the movies. I didn't care much about the culture beyond the language. And the language was just something that I stumbled upon. It wasn't like, you know, I chose it. It was just the only thing that was really offered in school. But I, I could speak it very well, so much so I could pray in French. That was how good I was with speaking French. You could pray in the French. I could pray in French, yeah. Interesting. What's amen in French? Amen. <laughs> amen. Okay. Straight, straightforward. <laughs> yeah, straightforward. And I remember right. one time, I, it was almost so second nature to me. I was praying in French and the person beside me was like, was that, were you, were you praying in French? It was something I just did because, you know, it was a language I could speak. But with time, I, because I didn't have that cultural connection, I started losing it. You know, and I realized that I took it like maybe language learning wasn't for me. Maybe I was not smart enough. And then when I stumbled upon Korean, it just clicked because I wanted to know everything about it. Like this language, how did it come about? So I started learning about the history. Uh, this doesn't just happen. It doesn't just click. Tell me what's his name. What's that K-drama actor's name? Because you're no, a Nigerian no, girl sometimes. No, you no. watch one K-drama and no. next thing you know, your Instagram page is flooded with... No, no, it's leave me home. No, I'm not even a fan of his. No, 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 it wasn't. No, it was actually the reverse for me. So I was in grad school 
taking one of my start classes. I usually sit in front just so I can connect with the professor. That's a Unilag hostel coming to America. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I went to do the diploma. Why you fight? Like, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, trauma, trauma. You raise your hand and ask questions too, huh? And I went to diploma where you had to be in front of the door by 5 a.m. Otherwise, you're not going to get a say. Oh, God. <laughs> so she had doodled on her note. I was like, hey, Chanyan, can you borrow me a note? I'd like to fill in some of the spots I missed. And I saw on the top right corner of her notebook, she had, you know, doodled in, in Korean, apparently. But it looked like rods and circles. I'm like, what the heck is that? She was like, oh, that's my language. Korean and I, I just started laughing like, oh, it looks weird. And then we laughed about it. Now, fast forward two years later, we both got internship to spots in the whole of the country to work for a biotech firm in Boston. So we decided to room together because it was going to be cheaper. It was like three grand a month. This was 2014. So we roomed together and every day this girl would eat rice and stuff. And I'm like, how are you eating rice every day and staying skinny? Me, that as an engineer, we're eating rice. We have to pray um, rosary four times, you know, so that we don't get fat. And I realized that in Korea, they turned the food pyramid upside down. Rice is a side dish. So not so any Nigerian here. They don't eat rice, but they're busy. It's a side dish. The main dish is the vegetables and the protein. Uh, you can't make jollof rice a side dish. What's, what's that? You cannot make it as a side dish, right? But they have so many <laughs> yummy things, you know, competing interests. And the rice was sticky. And she had this, you know, whenever she would open that rice cooker, I would say something in Korean. Like, he was excited to see her back. And she would give me her food. Now, there's so many meals in the U.S. I had to, like register my taste buds to like get you so like pickles and fermented food it took me a while to kind of get used to them because in nigeria we don't eat you know pickled food and all that that sounds like a texas thing yeah pickles yeah like they put that in burgers and all that right. but with korean food it felt like apart from kimchi which, which took a while for me to get used to but i love it now with korean food it felt like it was just natural and then my mom we started talking to our parents about our parents i realized that my mom and your mom are similar you said they were not separated at birth and it was that whole <laughs> thing of we're so similar you know all immigrant moms are the same. They're the same. You know, like my Syrian friend telling me about her mom putting um, noodles and thread in a Danish cookie, whatever. And I'm like, your mom did that too. You know, my Ukrainian friend told me the same thing. Same thing my Russian friend said. Right. And that was it. And the more I learned about her culture, I realized that, oh my God, I need to explore that more. But that was just it. And then three years later, I was done with grad school because I was in a student visa. I had to wait to get my H-1B, which was my worker's visa. And I had three months and there's nothing worse than more being idle. Idleness makes me very depressed. And so I took on the task of just doing something. I was learning the guitar. And then one night I had gone to visit my husband who was in his residency in New Mexico. It was sometime in January. And I got an email from Coursera, the app where you can learn all kinds of stuff. I'd taken some courses mm -hmm. on negotiation and data coding and whatnot. And it was Learn Korean 101. And I remember just coughing at the like, <laughs> Who learns language online? If you want to learn a language, you go to a school. Because I used to go to summer school then. I didn't mention that for French. You go to a proper school, you learn the language. You don't like do that online. But I looked at my phone and the first time it was a course through Yonsei University. Yonsei for context is like one of the top Ivy League schools. There are three schools in Korea. They call them Sky. Seoul University, Korean National University, and then Yonsei University. And these three schools are very early schools. So Yonsei had a course on Coursera, but the way they described it, the way they started, it really appealed to my brain. I'm someone, I want to know why things work. Again, that pattern of questioning, why are these numbers and why are these characters like that? They started from the basic principles about um, Confucian principles about the circle being the sun and the rods being the earth. 
And in Yoruba, the way we say our words, they're very tonal, like the shape of your tongue when they move, when you say certain words, is how Korean was. And it clicked. But in an hour, actually, I was looking through my phone and before I knew it, I went back, opened my computer. And in one hour's time, I could read the characters. Now, I didn't know what half of the words meant if I put them. In one hour, you could read what? In one hour, I could read Korean. In an hour. You could read Korean, like the example sentences in the course? I could read them. I might not know what's... Interesting. Yes, because they started from the basic principles and it finally clicked. I'm like, I could get on with this language because they talked about the history, how King Sejong, you know, he wanted a language that the commoners, because before then it was only the elites, the young bands that could speak Chinese. There was mostly Chinese characters, right? They could speak and read it, but the commoners could only speak it. They couldn't read it. They couldn't write it. So that was also like a dividing factor, you know, the way they used to kind of oppress the low income people. So this king said he wanted to bridge that gap. He was going to toss these Chinese characters away. He wanted to create a language. So Korean is one of the few languages in the world where we can trace its origin to the 13th century, right? And this king, he brought a lot of people together. Like they almost killed him because this elite people started telling the low income, the commoners, like, hey, he's possessed by the devil. Mm. Tries like, you know, scatter everything, but God didn't let them win. And we have the Korean language. It's a very beautiful language. It's the 13th most scientific language in the world. If I tell you that learning Korean gets me excited, I don't even know how to explain it. I can see it. Like you talking about it is getting me excited. And only Mo can do this because only Mo can say, oh, you see, I should just breeze past. Like, yeah, you know, I'm taking some courses, you know, learning to code. I was trying to play the guitar and now I'm learning a different language and I'm doing PhD. I'm like, bruh. I'm like, bro, that first class wasn't, wasn't a mistake. It was earned because, man... Like I said, the adventures of Mo, like they're just so many. Again, when you learn a new thing about Mo, it's just like, again, she does this. And she also, at now, I'll, I'll stop getting surprised. I'm like, yeah, she also, yeah, an astronaut that's going to the moon next month. Like, yeah, yeah, that's just Mo. That, that's no, just Mo. I'm so very, I'm so very normal. So yeah, that was just it. Teach us some Korean though. Like I like to, like whenever I interview someone that speaks a different language and, you know, as we start to wind down the episode, like what are a few things you can teach me? Maybe, hi, how are you? You know, basic stuff in Korean. Okay, so I can maybe describe myself in Korean and then explain what that means and then teach you some basic ones about that. Okay. Okay. So you know how when people tell you, oh, teach me, say something in Korean, you start thinking, oh, what should I do? All right, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Hello, everyone. What do you want to Nigeria is a person who is a person who is a person Yo, yo, the tone, no, wait, 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 no, 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 the tone, this girl, like, do you know you can do voiceovers and if no one sees your face, like, they'll think it's a Korean reading that, oh, please, <laughs> No, like you guys don't understand, like this podcast is going to be audio, right? Like if I put the clip up, you think I'm interviewing a Korean. Damn. 
Like I heard, oh, I think you, you probably introduced yourself and you said you're a Nigerian. Yes, yes. I came here through immigration. You moved from Texas, Texas to Oklahoma, yeah. I think yeah, you were trying yeah. to say. I'm just kind of like describing your background. Yes, that I have a pharmacy background. I have a daughter. I moved here in 20s. I moved to Oklahoma in 2017. Mo, we have to do something like, you know, my Nigerian brain is kicking in. How can we make money for this? What can <laughs> we do, Mo? Voice over work. What can we do? Can we do like a Korean version of Culture Club? What can we do with this? No, you have a podcast as well. Yeah, I do have a podcast. Yeah. That is impressive. How long did it take you to master the tone? It's still a work in progress. So the thing about Korean is that even though it's tonal, it's flat. So in English, for example, introduction, you know, there's emphasis on some words, you know, there's, you can stress some words at the expense of other words. In Korean, no, the way you sit is where you pronounce it, right? The only time you change your tone is if you are switching it to become a question. So take, for example, bagel pie means I'm hungry. Bagel pie. Bagel pie, yeah. You know, and then if I wanted to turn into a question, I can, oh, bagel pile, you know, just like that. Bagel pile. Bagel pile, you know, like you're pile? like That's a question. No, that's not a question. That's like a. It's a question. Yeah, it's a question. It's the same meaning like, are you hungry? Mm-hmm. And in that context, the subject is assumed. Now, the only thing that was kind of confusing was the way the Korean um, word is, the verb is at the end. So it's subject, object, verb. In English, we say, I go to school. In Korean, it's high school go. Ah, is that why? Is that yes. why when Asians are learning to speak English, they also do yes, that with yes, the verb? Yes, ah, yes, 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 that's Because why. some Asians, like if you're still learning to speak English, you know, they use words like, oh, I go now. You know, it's kind of like... Yeah, go now. Yes, yes, yes. Interesting. Yes. Ah. And you, you want to know how difficult it is to move from Korean or Asian speaking to like English? I can imagine. I can only imagine. Ah. I don't think I would be able to do it if it was the other way around. Yeah. yeah, to be honest, that's why I like when I look at some immigrants, when I'm down sometimes, I'm like, man, this whole U.S. struggle, struggling in the diaspora and everything. And I think of some, you know, Hispanic people, some Asian people who came here with nothing, no language, yep. no education, yep. Yep. came to the heart of New York or wherever and still made it. I'm like, dude, at least you, you, can you can speak it. English, you're educated. You're like, what do you have to complain about, you know, compared to what some other immigrants are going through, you know, that type of thing. True that. Sure that. Man, this has been interesting, Mo. Like, we should definitely do this again. Like, this is, like I said, the adventures of Mo, man. There's so many things. I'm sure there are a lot of things we didn't even cover, but man, your life is... No, yeah. <laughs> man, I mean, man, I don't know. Maybe you should come back home and run for president or something. I don't know. Like, we... Oh, please. I'm, I'm ill-equipped. Man, you, you have so much to give to this world. I think... Your experiences, even though some of them might seem traumatic in the moment, just like, you know, you writing the wrongs of maybe your your dad with your daughter, that type of thing. I think there's a purpose for everything. And again, I don't think you give yourself enough credit. Like, I respect you a lot. And like I said, getting this interview alone, I'm like, man, how can I get more on this podcast? But Thanks thanks for not giving up on me. I appreciate your persistence. (laughs) Oh, no, definitely. And, you know, we're still together. I look forward to being on your show as well sometime in the future. And with this thing we're doing with Podbreak as well. Because if Podbreak didn't happen, like, there's no way, like, we could have gotten connected. So, you know, there's a purpose for everything. Thanks to Nancy. Yes, yes. Thanks to Nancy for that. Now that we've, you know, taken our relationship up a notch by by being on the podcast, you know, anytime I'm in Oklahoma City or anytime you're ever in Denver, 
or something like that. Maybe we can do this in person as well. But yes, let's do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. For being on the podcast. Let's drop some of your stuff, man. So where can they find the most civil podcast? Do you want to give out like sure. you know, social media stuff, websites, that kind of stuff? So um, well, on Instagram at the more civil podcast. So civil is my pen name. It means prophetess or so someone that can see the future. It's also my daughter's middle name. So S-I-B-Y-L, that's my variant of civil. Nice. So the more, so, cause you get more out of me, my, I try to like, you know, bring people on the podcast whose stories I'm, hey. I'm inspired. So the more civil podcast, or you can check out the website, M-O-S-I-B-Y-L, mosibyl.com, or just, you know, type in mosibyl on your Google and we've actually taken control of like the first three pages on, on Google. Nobody goes to the second or third one, but the first one is all of us. So yeah, you can find nice. me on there and yeah. Do you separate your professional persona from your podcast persona? I try to. Or do your colleagues kind of like know what you do on the side? They do. I mean, there was a time that, you know, it was like my podcast was like my mistress. My work was my... But then I got a grant funded by the Department of Defense on prostate nice. cancer. And I came out of my closet. I actually proposed in my grant that I was going to use my podcast as a way to do dissemination of my findings and bring the community together. And it was one of the things that got me funded. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I didn't have to hide. Not like I was hiding my podcast before. I just didn't want it to, you know, be the first yeah. thing people talk. Probably because you're not talking about high value men and why women should cook and men should. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, my colleagues know that. Now. I've actually brought a couple of them and I'm very open about, even on my CV, I put it on there. So, yeah, it's it's nice. out there and open now. Yeah, I'm out of the closet. <laughs> Oh, Mo, th this has been great, Mo. This has been great. I'm so glad we could stay up tonight to do this, man. But thank, thank you. you again so much for being on the podcast. And for listeners, as always, this Culture Class podcast, you know, getting to interact with different people, you know. Um, have I had a Korean on the podcast? I think so. Someone from South Korea. Nice. I think like two, three years ago, maybe. Podcast is cultureclasspodcast.com. Check us out. This episode will probably drop sometime in April. But until next episode, you guys be well. Bye. Thank you.